10, Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Has God abandoned his church? This is a question that it might be tempting to ask ourselves. We look at the world around us. We look at um, social unrest, civil unrest, political unrest. And things look like they are slipping at an increasing rate. We seem to be losing all sense of morality. We have moved from assuming God is true and that he's there, whether we agree with him or not, to refusing even the existence of God. And not only our culture, but the church itself seems to be suffering. His blessings seem far removed from us. There are false teachers in the church, those who do not proclaim or teach the gospel. They teach a works-based righteousness of one that is not by faith alone, or they teach that God just wants you to be healthy, he wants you to be wealthy, he wants you to be wise. If you just have enough faith, he's going to be that genie in a bottle for you. These teachings miss the heart of the gospel Our faith, Christianity, has become a self-help religion. And what are we to do in the face of all of these things? Has God abandoned his church? Are we disheartened? Is there any hope for us? 
as we approach chapter 11 here in Romans, we'll see a theme that is repeated twice. This is the first time that we see it. And Paul uh, does a, he uses a pattern here. He introduces the question, I ask then, or therefore I say. He answers the question in the negative, And then he says, by no means, the the, the answer is definitely no. And he's going to answer this question for Israel. And I think in the same manner, he's going to answer it for us. Has God rejected or abandoned his people? Has God abandoned his people? Paul will show us an Israel that is divided, but he will show us that there is a remnant that remains. So as we come to our text this morning, we'll see three things. Israel's rejection, Israel's remnant, and Israel's hardened. Israel's rejection, Israel's rejection, Israel's remnant, and Israel's hardened. Verse 1 begins here by Paul saying, I ask, uh, there is an implied therefore, because of these things I ask then, has God rejected his people? And it's been a couple weeks now, I didn't preach last week, the week before last, Uh, in our previous text we saw in in Isaiah 10, or excuse me, in in Romans 10, uh, Paul quoting some things from Isaiah, that Those who have not sought God have received him, but those who sought after his law have not received him. There's this sense in which Paul says, Israel has not received the gospel. So Paul asked, then has God, this is a natural outflowing of this question, then does this mean God has rejected his people? And his answer is emphatic, by no means. May it never be. God's promises are true. Despite her disobedience, she remains the people of God. Well, in what sense is this true? In what sense is she still the people of God? Paul reminds us that he himself identifies with Israel. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. As Paul claims these things, as he claims himself an Israelite, what do we also know about him? Well, Paul is also a Christian. He is a missionary, a disciple for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I am evidence, I am proof that God has not abandoned his people. For I am an Israelite who has received and has seen the risen Messiah. So he, he rejects the notion of God's rejection of his people in the strongest sense that he can, by no means. God has not rejected Israel. He has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. He points to God's election. God chose them before they had done anything right or wrong to be a people, not because they'd proven themselves worthy, But because of God's gracious choice, Paul once again uses this word for new here. We've already looked at this word in Romans. 
He knew them beforehand. This is an indication of his election. God's choosing guarantees blessing and benefits. And this comes to the people as a whole. But it does not guarantee salvation for every single individual Israelite. So when we look at Israel's rejection, we see that God has not rejected Israel. He has persevered. He has loved them. And this should be a great comfort to us. That God has not rejected his people. We look at Israel and what do we know is true about Israel? What was Israel's unfortunate history? Over and over and over again. God came and sought after them. And they erected idols. They followed after Baal. They followed after all these other idols. They turned away from God. They turned away to the lust and the desires of their own hearts. And over and over and over again, how did God deal with Israel? He dealt with them graciously. He sent to them prophets. He sent to them uh, judges. He sent to them those who would call them back to himself over and over and over again. He has compassion. And he does all of this. Because of the grace which he has given. This is the same that's true for us today. God is continuing to draw to himself those who are truly his. So we look at the state of the world. We look at everything around us. And we cry out, has God abandoned his church? And how do we answer that question? We say, no, God has not. By no means has he abandoned his people. And so I can stand before you and I can say, consider me. He has not rejected me. Consider yourselves. He has not rejected you. There are still his remnant out there. Here, here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ is much like Israel, isn't it? What do I mean by that? We continue to erect idols. We continue to seek after the desires of our own hearts. We move away from God instead of towards God. We are disobedient. We are hard-headed. Even as we look at the failings of the church, we know that it's not about what we do. We know it's about what God has done and is doing. It's about the unmerited grace of God. And we are able to take hope in this. So when we look at the world around us, we are encouraged. We can be encouraged and be of great cheer for we know that God is working, that his remnant will be preserved. And this is his second point, or my second point today, Israel's remnant. First, Paul points to himself. He says, I'm an example of this. I have come to Christ and know him. But then he points to Elijah. He points to scripture and he points to the story of Elijah's dealing with King Ahab and his notorious wife Jezebel. 
Jezebel has come in with, with Ahab, and they have killed all the prophets of God. And there's only one who remains, and it's Elijah. So Elijah, he, he goes out into the wilderness. He's threatened with the same fate. And he's out in the wilderness. He is, he's complaining. Rightly so, right? Hey, God, all of these other prophets, they've been murdered. They've been killed. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to your people? You, you can imagine his state, couldn't you? Okay, so let's just say for a moment, we're a small church, relatively small church. Now let's just say someone came in and killed all of us but you. <laughs> and you're running and you're fleeing. Could you imagine your mindset at that point? You're hiding up in our woods back here, picking the last few blackberries up on the hill to survive, right? Could you imagine the mental state that you would be in? This is Elijah. This is not just a, a, a nice story. He has really witnessed these things. And he is lamenting. And the Lord comes to him and he says, look. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's one hand we can look at this and go, well, that's a lot of people. 7,000, that's a lot of people, right? If we had 7,000 people here, we'd be rocking it. But there's another sense in which we go, 7,000 is not a lot. What is the population of Alabama? What is the population of the United States? 7,000 people. I mean, Israel was in the millions. 7,000. It's not a lot, but it is a remnant. God has kept them. They are those, he says in verse 5, at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. God will continue to care for his people. It is his pledge of hope both to them continuing in grace and even into the future. And it was true in the time of Elijah and it's certainly true in the time of Paul and it's true for us today. God is carrying his people into eternity. He is always preserving for himself a remnant. And they come into being as a result of his gracious election. God has not abandoned Israel, not because they were somehow special, not because they were somehow good, not because they obeyed the law enough, but because of God's gracious intervention that they may be transformed from sinners to the righteous people of God. And Paul stresses the fact that this is wholly done by grace. They are those who are chosen by grace. It doesn't come from works of the law. It doesn't come through works of the flesh. It comes by grace. Over and over again, we've seen Paul here struggling and wrestling and really just coming against those 
who seek to do works. And it's not even that they're really seeking to actually live up to the works of the law. No, they seek work based on human merit. And because of this, they can make no claim on God. If we could make a claim on God, what does that do to our theology? What does that do to grace? If it's something we do, then grace is no longer grace. Grace demands that God be perfectly free to bestow his favor on whomever he chooses. And if God is not free to do that, then it is not grace. God is preserving for himself a remnant. He is calling them out by grace. Again, we live in a time that seems to be running and fleeing from the cross. But we are to take heart. We are to be encouraged. Because even as this is true, we must understand that the gospel of grace is no less true. That God is preserving for himself a remnant. 7,000 is not a lot. But let me go even less. What if, and this is completely hypothetical, what if there were even just one person in Pell City, just one, who was part of that remnant? It's worth it, isn't it? We persevere and we bring the gospel because that one is God's called by grace. We know that this world will not be victorious for Christ is victorious. Even as people running are running from him, we know that his grace will prevail. The gospel is going out and we take hope in this knowledge. We rest in what he has done for us. But Paul leaves us with a sobering fact. He has divided Israel in essence into two groups. On one hand, you have corporate Israel, but then you have Israel, who is the remnant, and then finally you have Israel, who is the hardened. Those whose hearts have been hardened. He, he concludes this section by saying, what then? What then? Israel failed, this is in verse 7, to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And we begin to see the difference in the groups that people is talking about. First, we have Israel, I said, as a corporate whole. Those who have not attained righteousness through the works of the law, even though they sought after it, they did not obtain it. Then you have the elect, those by virtue of God's gracious choice are the rest. Those called out, those who are holy to the Lord but finally, you have those who have been hardened by God. John Calvin's understanding of this group is that 
It was God's hardening as God's decree by which he destined some for damnation. The reformers called this the destination for reprobation. Paul is going to support this by pointing to the Old Testament. He's saying the rest, those who have not received grace, by natural implication, their hearts have been hardened. And he's going to point to three different passages. Deuteronomy 29.4, Isaiah 29.10, Psalm 69.22-23. These two quotes are built up from these passages. And it's interesting here, I think, Somewhat intentionally, Paul begins by looking at the law in Deuteronomy. He moves to Isaiah and looks at the prophets. He moves to Psalms, the writings, these three different parts of the Old Testament. He's looking to the whole of Scripture to show that this is true. So first he looks at, he looks at Deuteronomy 29.4. Deuteronomy 29.4 is Moses giving his final exhortation to Israel before they enter the promised land. We know, of course, Moses will not come in with them. He'll, he'll be dying soon. And he says to them, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear. Down to this very day, the latter half of this, these eyes that could not hear, or eyes that could not see and ears could not hear is part of this. God has hardened the hearts of those. Isaiah 29, 10, this is the first half of that. God gave them a spirit of stupor. They have this spirit of stupor. They're blind to spiritual things. This is given to them by God. Their hearts are being hardened. Psalm 69, 23 through 23. This is David. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I love this description, bend their backs forever. This is a, a position of stubbornness. Have you ever had a child who went just rigid, bend that back out, and you're trying to hold them? You can't do it, can you? It's very hard to do. That when they go rigid back and you're they're flailing and it's it's a, it's a position of stubbornness. David is praying in these psalms, let them be stubborn forever. God is hardening has hardened their hearts. And what are we to make of this? We see that as the world turns from God, he is still in control. God is still sovereign. He is the one who closes the ears. He is the one who shuts the eyes. He has given them over to their sinful desires. He has hardened their hearts to what is right and true. He has put upon them a spirit of stupor. This is a lesson that is often hard for us to hear, that God is the one who hardens hearts. He is the one who is so sovereign over all things. There is nothing that is out of the scope of God's control. But again, we should be encouraged by this. God is in control. In a time where we think that everything is out of control, God is in control. We are not in control. This world is not in control. God 
is in control. So we can look at senseless murder. We can look at why is, why is abortion allowed? Why are people mocking the God that we serve? Why are they exchanging the truth for a lie? And we see God is in control. We may not know, but he is in control. He is God, and he is good, and he is gracious. I am thankful that I am not in control. You should be thankful that I am not in control. We mess everything up. From the youngest of age, we want control until we have it, right? As we grow, we push those boundaries. Why can't I do this? Why are you not allowing me to do this? And we as parents, we try to put restrictions that we can keep our children from harm. But if you're like me, as a child, you are continually pushing that boundary. I want control over my life until I had it. And then bills came. And then I had to work. Somehow money did not just come from somewhere. Wait, I can't just go to dad and be like, hey, I need movies. I want to go to the movies. Give me money. That's not how it works. As we get in control, we realize that we're not in control. God is good and God is gracious, and I'm thankful that he has not left it to me. I know that in myself, if I were left to myself, my heart would be hardened to the things of God. I would not seek after him. I would delight willingly in my own arrogance. I would be like the pig in the mud rolling around in my own waste, and I would be happy and content. But thanks be to God that he has not left me to myself. We have not been rejected by God. He is continually, patiently, lovingly preserving for himself a remnant. By his gracious love, he has delivered us out of death into life. But at the same time, there are those he has delivered into retribution. So it is tempting. It is tempting for us to look at this world and to be discouraged. And we might even be tempted to ask, has God abandoned his church? Has he abandoned us? But we see this wonderful truth. He continues to keep and protect his people, even when darkness is all around us and closing in. It is in this that we can take hope. We can rest secure in what he has done. We can rest secure in what he is doing. And we can rest secure in what he will do. Paul gives to us a message of hope. I have kept for myself a remnant. I have not abandoned you. We have hope in his calling. We have hope 
in the one who gives and withholds grace. Because he is good. He is gracious. He is sovereign over all things. He did not... Paul is the most wonderful example of this, isn't he? Because Paul worked hard to find Jesus, right? Paul went after Jesus with this vigor until he earned his way into Jesus' good graces, right? No. Paul was on the road from one town to another town. He left where he just killed some Christians, and he was going to kill some more Christians. And what happened on that road? Jesus' grace. The grace of God's calling. He softened his heart. God is in control. He gives and withholds his grace. But thanks be to God that he is indeed loving and merciful. Because left to ourselves, we would be without hope. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope that we come to when we even come to this table. Jesus Christ intervening on our behalf. Without what this table represents, there's no hope for us. Christ's body broken, his blood poured out. To reconcile sinners to himself. Let us take hope and wonder in the gracious mercy of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, it is hard for us when we approach passages like this to see your word say things like you are the one who gives grace and you are the one who withholds grace. But Lord, we see the truth set here before us. Would we take hope and encourage in who you are and what you have done? And Lord, even in, when the world looks like it's all around us, is just falling apart. We know that you are continuing to work and you are sovereign and you are in control. Would we take hope in this, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.